Welcome to OAC Vancouver's podcast. Thank you for tuning in. We believe that Jesus is needed and relevant for people in Vancouver today. The message of God's love and promise of wholeness was destined to be experienced within a faith community that worships, studies scripture, and prays together. We warmly welcome you to journey with us towards greater connection, purpose, and peace. We'll be sharing our recorded services and conversations with health and wellness experts. Enjoy. Good morning. It's nice to see so many of you here today. And doesn't it look festive? I couldn't tell if you were smiling behind your masks, but I think I saw some extra twinkle in your eye when you recognized how lovely everything is looking. And I just wanted to give a special thanks to those who came last Saturday night, a couple people who came midweek to help us make this place look welcoming and cheerful for you. Um, Definitely Gloria and Oscar have strung the most lights outdoors and indoors. We also had Tess. We had two new people, new to OAC, Lucia and Dante, who helped fluff wreaths and assemble things. The Aguilar family, after a long, long day, assembled an entire tree for us. Um, and Evelyn and Marlita, so a small group, but uh, so committed to just brightening the season for you as the days get darker. Um, Also, you'll notice today that maybe the sound is a little bit different. We had a bit of a malfunction or catastrophe with our soundboard, so I also want to just thank David and Otto and Ray for coming together last night and with their genius patching things so that we had some sound and some amplification. But it reminds me that um, the worship experience is as rich as what you bring to it. Often you get hidden behind the amplification. And so today, especially in the closing song, we encourage you to fill the soundscape with your voices. We um, are facing different restrictions as places of worship in the coming weeks. And I can reassure you that the vaccine screening won't be affecting us yet because we are well under the 50% capacity of this space. So again, it makes me think and thank our founding generation, the builders of this church who had the foresight to give us a huge volume of air space and how that is helping keep us um, safely and comfortably distanced from one another where we don't have to have that extra layer of logistics. And OAC has continued to always ask um, and request and require you to wear masks to church. And so I'm so thankful that this community, it's not a big deal to sort of say, yep, we're already in line with the current health protocols. So this is December. This is how we roll into the final month of the year. And I wanted to let you know that what's been on my heart as I'm thinking about this final month, the last 12th of 2021 is that I just have this really aching prayer and a desire for you as you close out the year that you would experience in these final weeks spiritual renewal and spiritual vitality. I want you to seize every single opportunity in the next 28 days, the next four weeks, to draw closer to God and to experience his presence so that when you look back and you look at 2021 with all of the hopes and expectations we rolled into, that it would be so different from 2020, 
And as you reflect on the highs and the lows, I just wish that it is these closing moments that become a highlight for you because you experienced the power of God in your life, that you could say, this was a milestone moment is how I closed out 2021. So as one of my fitness instructors tells me at the beginning of each class, now is the time to set your intention. Now is the time to take a breath, to take a pause and say, what are my intentions for the following hour that we continue our worship, but what are my intentions to close out 2021? What is within my choice, my focus, my priorities? What am I gonna do with them to make this a strong ending to the year? And I think we have so much opportunity to seize because we have this story to tell. It's Christmas season, it's Advent season, and we have a story to tell, a story that is life-changing. And while some Christians might shun or ignore the holiday as they're worried about pagan influence or symbolism, I just see this reminder that God's story can be the overriding story. God's story is a story of redemption. God's story is powerful enough to overwrite corrupted superstitions, right? So as Seventh-day Adventists, I feel we have a very compelling reason to celebrate the first Advent because Jesus' birth into humanity would save us from sin. While we anticipate Jesus' return to this earth is going to save us from evil. So we have these book-ended moments that we know are going to unfurl in the story of human history. Jesus is coming back, and he's going to rescue us from evil, just like he was born a baby to rescue us from sin. So it's in our church name as Seventh-day Adventists. We have these two pillars preserved, two teachings that should motivate us and inform what we do. Seventh day, Jesus is creator. Adventist Jesus is Savior. And in the Sabbath message, we see these two concepts interlinked. Creation and salvation are deeply connected. So here's the season. It's ripe with opportunity to both show and tell the world of how his story has impacted our story. This is a season where we have opportunities galore to live generously. In fact, this week, uh, I was sharing with Ryan, I can't recall in my five years of pastoral ministry such a compressed time frame. I had three or four days in which every single day I was responding to a really desperate need. Normally, December is a hard month. January is a hard month. We get some requests for financial support, spiritual support. But I can't remember a week where every single day, four days in a row, I was listening and just feeling hopeless of how to respond, how to care and support. There's a gentleman who has not been in church for decades, but he was baptized in the New West Church, now in palliative care, facing the end of life. And he wants a special song list provided. There is a family of five facing eviction, no connection whatsoever to our church, but probably a serendipitous 
web search had led them to our landing page. They messaged us on the little info bot and they just in broken English wrote Christmas hamper question mark. And they called our church and it was way more than a Christmas hamper they need. This family of five, three kids under eight years old facing eviction. A father who can't work because he's trying to study and get his accounting credentials here in Canada. And so this feeling of desperation. We have 60 or more neighbors a block from us who need Christmas packages that would give them socks and mittens and, and help them gift to the children in their lives. So if any of these uh, situations have tugged your heartstrings, if you feel the Holy Spirit is moving on you to be generous in any of those avenues, um, please give me a call and let's, let's talk. Today, after our service, we're going to be encouraging you to visit a shut-in senior and bring a little bit of Christmas cheer their way as well. There is a world that is growing dark. There is a world that is growing great in its need in its desperation. And we are in a need for a shift. We're in a need for a cosmic move. And I think about the history 2,000 years ago where God's chosen people who were promised a Messiah, were promised a savior, kept telling the story to their children and their grandchildren, kept passing on the hope of a promise for generations and they felt like God was silent. Maybe their hope was also wearing thin. Maybe the overwhelm of darkness was growing great. And it had been 400 years since God inspired his word through the voice of a prophet. 400 years since Malachi penned an inspiration to the people and they were still waiting. So while we wait for our promise of a returning king, where might we find some inspiration in the first advent? Where might we gain insights in this season of anticipation? What happened in the precursor moments before Jesus' birth that we might apply today? As we look, what were the people feeling then? What were they doing then? How were they responding? Most importantly, how was God moving in advance of his first arrival? For that, I'm gonna take you to um, Matthew chapter one today. That's our scripture focus, Matthew chapter one. And the coming weeks, I'm gonna be focusing on the stories that precede Jesus' birth. And then fortunately, Christmas day falls on Sabbath. So we're gonna to come together that day and we're going to celebrate that pinnacle moment in history. But today, let's um, talk about the backstory because I feel like there's a story within the story. And often uh, I'm tempted when I get to these sections where I just see a lot of names that I just want to skip over scripture. Um, but the more I look into it, the more I appreciate and realize it's true. Every single word in this book was inspired, was God breathed, was preserved, miraculously preserved for our benefit today. So we look at how Matthew connects the Old Testament to the Next Testament. 
and it reads this way from the voice translation. This is the family history, the genealogy of Jesus the anointed. You will see in this history that Jesus descended from King David, and he is also descended from Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and Judah's 11 brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah. Perez and Zerah, their mother was Tamar, sidebar. Tamar was Judah's widowed daughter-in-law. And because she was barren, because she was without a husband, she had to resort herself to dressing up like a prostitute and seducing her father-in-law so that she could keep the family um, line alive. She's mentioned. Perez, her son, was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Aminabab. Aminabab was the father of Nashom. Nashom was the father of Solomon. Solomon was the father of Boaz. And Boaz married Ruth, sidebar. Ruth was a Canaanite. I mean, Re uh, Solomon was the father of Boaz, and Boaz's mother was Rahab. Rahab was the Canaanite prostitute in Jericho who heroically hid Israel's spies and um, basically saved, again, her, her household, her children. And she later married a prince of Israel and had a son, Boaz. Boaz was the father of Obed. His mother was Ruth. So remember, she's the Canaanite converted into the Hebrew faith. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David, who was king of the nation of Israel. David was the father of Solomon. Sidebar, Solomon's mother was Bathsheba. She was first married to Uriah. We continue in verse 7. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam was the father of Abijab. Abijab was the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was the father of Joram. Joram was the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham. Jotham was the father of Ahaz. Ahaz was the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh. Manasseh was the father of Ammon. Ammon was the father of Josiah. Josiah was the father of Jehoniah and his brothers. And Josiah's family lived at the time when God's chosen people of Israel were deported from the promised land to Babylon. We have just moved through two chapters, two acts of the Old Testament. And Joanna and Peter Paul, if you're still looking for baby names, I mean, this is ripe with novel, trendy, unique. You know, you want your kid to stand out, and Apple is already taken, so just go to Matthew 1. Verse 12, after the deportation to ba Babylon, Jeconiah had a son, Sheatiel, and Sheatiel was the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abiud. Abiud was the father of Elikayim. Elikayim was the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok. Zadok was the father of Achim. Achim was the father of Eliud. Eliud was the father of Eleazar. Eleazar was the father of Matham. Matham was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, who married the woman Mary. And it was Mary who gave birth to Jesus. Whew. What a story. Now, that is a lot of begats if you're reading an 
older translation or version. And it's, again, tempting to be like, whoa, I'm so bogged down with the names in here. Why doesn't Matthew just jump to the you know, exciting part of shepherds watching their flocks and angels appearing? Well, Matthew is writing his gospel to a predominantly Jewish people. And he's like almost uh, very clever in his logic and his strategy. I would say he's inspired in his strategy to once again make the case that this Messiah that they were longing for, that they were looking for, that they were long expecting was to fulfill these prophecies, these covenants, these promises given to their fathers, Abraham and David. He was carefully dictating and proving the lineage, the family lineage. Now there's an interesting cross-cultural connection that some of you might be familiar with in your own cultures, but I know it to be true in some African nations or African tribal groups, is that when a new chief is appointed, the um, matriarch or patriarch, a record keeper for the community as an integral part of the ceremony in passing leadership to the new chief, will stand up and recite the lineage of that individual. This person needs to be presented before the community and the, the, the cultural historian will take an account of who their father, their grandfather, their great-grandfather was to validate this call to leadership, to validate their authority of the group, to validate their position. And it was true in Jewish culture. You couldn't buy or sell property without presenting your lineage, your genealogy, because God had promised this land to the people of Israel, and they had been divided up. The regions and the territories had been given to the 12 tribes, and there was a specific attachment. You had to sort of say, this is my right to the inheritance. And what's kind of fascinating here about Matthew is that his genealogy does skip some names. But he's being strategic and he tells you, he's transparent about what he's doing here. He concludes by saying, Abraham and David are linked with 14 generations and 14 generations link David to the Babylonian exile and 14 more generations take us from the exile to the birth of the anointed one. Now for us, you know, we're not really into numerology so much in the, in the Western society, but Jews would understand the importance of 14. They would also read into that, a son of David, a son of David, a son of David. David in the Hebrew writings had three letters, and in the Hebrew alphabet, letters are assigned values. So the letters for David's name would be 646. 14. When you add them together, another way the Jews might look at this, and some Jewish uh, scholars would, would examine this and say, well, seven is the more important number in our Jewish understanding of the spiritual story. So what we have in these three acts, these three groupings of 14 generations, is really a set of six sevens. Two sevens in the first act, two more sevens to make up the next cluster of 14, and two more sevens to make up the final cluster of 14. 
And so you have seven sevens, which is again, very significant in Jewish understanding. It should be significant in our understanding because when you had seven, um, on the seventh day you have a Sabbath, in the seventh year, it was celebrated as well. And when you had seven times seven, you would get to the Jubilee in the 49th year. And here we have Jesus' arrival painted in this like alphanumerical code that everyone would understand. Like we've already moved through these six perfect seven passages of generations. And now in the seventh generation, it makes sense to expect the Messiah. It makes sense to expect the God of Jubilee, which is the God of liberation, which is the God of freedom. And Jesus himself, when he preaches in the temple later in life, will use these references, Jubilee language, I've come to set people free. So all of that is in this, what seems to be kind of boring list of human beings that are in the lineage of Christ. But we also get a nice summary. If you don't have time to read the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi, it's right there in two sentences for you, thanks to Matthew. We have Abraham to David, in which there is this covenant of blessing being played out. We have David's time to captivity, where people forgot about God's faithfulness and his provision. They rejected God, they turned their back on God, and God had to kind of put them in a timeout. And then we have from the return of their exile to the arrival of the Messiah. That's really a summary of what the Old Testament is conveying. In this genealogy, it is also so rich. It is a genius of inspiration for us because it gives us evidence that God keeps his promises. In the third act of being in exile and then you know, coming back home, returning to the promised land and their territorial um, region, these prophets start to speak and to prepare people. So this is, becomes an important part of the Advent story. What are the prophets saying? What do we need to do to prepare? And Isaiah, of course, gives us this beautiful um, prophecies about the Messiah, about the expected one. But the one I'm going to choose for you today comes from Isaiah 11, verse 1 to 3. And it's an, an encouragement to a name that we read in um, the first section of Jesus' genealogy. It says, there will come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch that will grow from the roots. You see, Jesse had felt like his line was the least important. If you remember, Jesse's father, Obed, is the son of a mixed marriage. You know, he has his parents, Boaz and Ruth. And so Jesse is feeling like that has defiled the chosen line. This has like corrupted our family history, our family story. And so Jesse is like the least of these in terms of the great 12 sons of Judah. And here we have this promise that Isaiah speaks out of the stump where you think it's cut off, where you think there is no hope for a future, a branch will grow. Folks, this is the original Christmas tree. These aren't Christmas trees. These are Jesse trees. 
And I had so much fun when I was a chaplain at Deer Lake Schools. We once got all the um, classes in the school to choose an ornament that represented one of these milestones in the history of, of Jesus' lineage. And we decorated the tree with, you know, all sorts of fun symbols. So if you're looking for a way to, you know, tell a story with your Christmas tree, you might be using it to tell a family story and have your heirloom ornaments. If that's not your tradition, I encourage you, try a new tradition and make a Jesse tree in your home. Relive this incredible story because Jesus would come, a tender, vulnerable root out of a line which was cut off and stumped. And Jesus would fulfill this promise. This is what the, the original hearers of this word were understanding. They knew that they had turned their back on God. They had rejected him. But here is a promise. Here's a reminder. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. And when he promises to raise up a deliverer in a bleak and desperate situation, he will. Even if it comes from an obscure or convoluted family situation. He would be this vulnerable, tender leaf that would be the promise of new growth and something majestic that would be built in the future. I'm sure we have all been disappointed by broken promises. What adult hasn't recalled some kid reminding them but you promised. You know, we are so quick to make promises to kids and they are so good at locking that in their memory banks and calling us out. It's one of the, the words I often will throw around in my marriage is like, but you promised. And we put a deadline on this and it still hasn't happened. People disappoint each other. People will break our promises. Even the vows that we declare before God and all these witnesses, we break those vows. We break our promises. We are incapable of perfectly staying true to our word and our best intentions. That's why we need Jesus. Because Jesus is the promise maker and he's the promise keeper. He's the one who had to come born in human flesh to keep the human side of the covenant, to keep our obligations and responsibilities to love God with all our heart, all our mind, all our soul. We fail at that. Abraham failed at that. David failed at that. But Jesus lived perfect love. And so he fulfills this promise as Matthew reminds us, that goes all the way back to Genesis 12, the promise of blessing for, for Abraham. I'm blessing you so that you will bless others and the whole world will be blessed through your descendants. For the promise given again by Isaiah in chapter 9-6 that says, for unto us a child is given and there will be no end to his reign and the throne of David. God reminds us throughout the Old Testament, not just once or twice. But you know, when I make a promise, I sometimes hope that people will forget the promise I made because I know that it's probably not going to happen. So I just try to stay quiet, or if you're in conversation with me and it takes the hard right turn, it's probably because I'm trying to avoid reminding you of something I said I would do. But God is so counter 
human to that is that he reminds us again and again. He's saying, test me and see. I want you to know that I am going to be held accountable in keeping my promises. One of the best promises, I think, that we need to go back to when times are crushing us, when we feel devastation, is the promise of Genesis 3 and that the serpent, that evil snake, the promise, it's kind of like a weird promise, a curse, which is a negative promise, is that I will defeat you. The snake will be crushed by the foot of the seed of the woman. Hebrews 10.23 reminds us again in the New Testament, don't forget that God is faithful in keeping his promises. And in fact, Matthew does this through his gospel. He basically draws a parallel of how Jesus relives Israel's history. Jesus relives all the milestones of Israel, the wilderness wandering, the baptism through the Red Sea, the expansion of the family of God to include Gentiles. It's all paralleled there in the gospel of Matthew. He's saying, is Jesus is going to fill all the promises. He's going to become the new Israel. He's going to be the savior of Israel. He's going to be the king of Israel. Secondly, what I think this gene genealogy is so ge genius is that it legitimizes who Jesus is. This genealogy, this opening of Matthew's gospel reminds us that Jesus' story is not a fairy tale. When have you ever read a genealogy like this for Santa Claus? When have you ever read the lineage of Spider-Man? You go back to maybe his parents, his grandparents, but here we have the family record. You will not find genealogy for Frosty the Snowman. This is not a once upon a time story. This is a true story. And to expose any accusations of fraudulence, Matthew is saying, you know, you can go to these records. They kept detailed library of family history. He said, you can consult this. Everything I'm putting in this gospel is true. Our faith is built on fact and not fiction. Jesus is no myth and no fairy tale. He is a verified man that lived died and rose again. Now from Joseph's side, we have the lineage given in Matthew. You'll read another genealogy of Jesus in Luke. And some people will say, but look, these don't match up. You know, oh, there's a flaw in scripture. Well, no, Luke is taking a different avenue because he's following Mary's side of her family history. They split right at the mention of David and Solomon. Matthew is going to take um, the course of Solomon, but if you notice, there was an interesting, again, sidebar in verse 11 where Josiah is the father of Jeconiah and Jeconiah's brothers, and Josiah's family lived at this time when the chosen were exiled. And then we read in verse 12, Jeconiah has the son, Sheatel, after the deportation. Now, if you were to go back and read in the Old Testament, this story play out, you would have to go back to Jeremiah 22:30, And you see that Jeconiah is so evil, 
He is such a bad king. He is such a terrible man that he has another negative promise laid against him, a curse or a consequential promise. And it says none of his offspring will prosper and none will sit on the throne of David. So how can Jesus legitimately claim heritage if there's this curse in his family tree? This again reminds me that when Satan is playing checkers, when evil is at work trying to undermine God's plans, God is playing chess. The enemy is playing checkers, but our God is playing chess, and he is a master strategist. So we find that even though there's cause for accusation, look, this family line is, one, defiled by all these women, many of them who came outside of the chosen people who are Gentiles, who are foreigners or outsiders. Secondly, there's a man in it so bad that God has had to redact you know, the, the course of history and say, you are a son of David, but no son of yours will take the throne. So Luke, thankfully, says, God's got this covered. Jesus is born of Mary, and Mary can also trace her family tree to David. The Messiah's bloodline is an account, is a history, is a retelling of how God is constantly at work redeeming um, broken families, messy families, horrible situations. I don't know about you, but if my grandfather was a rapist and a murderer, I don't think I would bring that up. I don't think I would feel a great sense of pride in my family tree to say, oh yeah, Grandpa, Grandpa David, you know, yeah, I'm here, I'm here because my grandpa uh, murdered someone and raped a woman. That's why my exist. I mean, we are dealing with a lot of our own family baggage now, but I don't know um, how much of it compares and holds a candle to the kind of baggage, the generational brokenness that we see in Matthew chapter one. But this is the beauty of the Advent story because when God forgives us, he overwrites sin's history. He sings a song of grace. He says, my identity that I share with you as you are adopted into the family of God is more powerful. In fact, it makes all of this mess, all of this junk in your family history more remarkable, more incredible to be part of your story because of how I've turned that around, what I'm doing with it now. God's family tree, this long list of individuals is a revelation of God's grace. And the family that Jesus came from reveals the family that Jesus came for and is coming back for. Don't let the enemy discourage you with the brokenness and the trauma and the mess in your past. Jesus came to set those in darkness free. So what are you gonna do this holiday season, this Advent season, to prepare him room to receive your king? Set your intentions on the God of grace today, amen. Thank you for listening to OAC Vancouver's podcast. Learn more at oacvancouver.ca. 
If you're in Vancouver, join us for worship Saturdays at 11 a.m. at 5350 Bailey Street. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate, review, and subscribe. God bless you and have a wonderful day.